Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company, all right? We're a movement of everyday folks like you and me who are letting beauty break through the noise so it can transform our culture from the inside out. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm so pumped you're here. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode three, season four of the Love Good Podcast. Such a joy to be sitting down in just a few moments with Josh Wilson. All right, this is an award-winning artist. He's been a big name in the Christian and gospel music scene at least since 2008. That's when I first heard Josh Wilson. That was the year that his debut album released called Trying to Fit the Ocean in a Cup. And we only discovered in the midst of this conversation today that he, in fact, lives, I think, less than than three blocks away from me. I mean, we're not even talking like a mile down the road. We're talking three blocks down the road here in South Nashville. And uh, so cool because we have probably bumped into each other on our morning runs without even realizing it. And so much of his hope for listeners and for fans is to find common ground, right? To really allow beauty and specifically music to be a force for unity, especially in a world that just feels increasingly divided. I'm sure all of us feel the effects of a world that is increasingly divided. And so today we we talk about empathy. We talk about kindness and how it's timeless and what an opportunity we all have to really relearn this art of being kind and really encountering people in their goodness long before we're debating our differences. Pretty powerful stuff. Before I sit down with Josh, I want you to enjoy this little song, which is the first song I ever heard by Josh Wilson. It's called Three Minute Song. Again, it's off his debut from 2008 called Trying to Fit the Ocean in a Cup. I've got a hundred metaphors And if I had a million more I could never, ever seem to sum this up how can some melody communicate eternity? It's like trying to fit the ocean in a cup. I'll never find the words to say, cause words only get in my way. I must apologize, I have the hardest time finding something to define a God. Well, Josh Wilson, welcome to the Love Good Podcast, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, we we just realized that we're probably, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a mile from each other, not even a couple of blocks away, almost on the same street, huh? (laughs) Yeah, we are apparently ships in the day because I walk past your house all the time, walking to that CVS and uh, taking walks around my neighborhood. So next, next time I pass you, I'll be sure and throw up an Air 5 for you. So funny. Yeah, only in COVID times would such a thing happen where we're sitting here on Zoom, 
but probably, you know, within walking distance of each other. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us. You've obviously, like the rest of us, been through the ringer over these last few months. You released a single in the midst of, I'm sure not quite the initial outbreak of the coronavirus, but a few weeks in quarantine. I can't wait to hear all about that. I just would also love to get to know you, Josh. Like you've been in Nashville at least since going to Belmont. Is that right? Yeah. So I I moved here in 2002 and I've lived here longer than anywhere else in my life. I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, but I lived there from age four to 18, so for 14 years. And then I moved here in 02, so I've been here 18 years. So I think I consider myself a, a true Nashvillian at this point. So here's what's cool, man, is I definitely was very aware of your music career as soon as it launched. And, and really, when it launched in a very public way, it was 2008 with Trying to Fit the Ocean in a Cup, right? Yeah, that was my first record, my first label record. It's amazing. And you obviously had some like major hits that came out of that record. I remember listening to it back when we still all owned CDs. I had a, a CD player in my car, and it was one of those albums I could probably predict the next song, you know, track by track by track, because I would have listened to it all the way through many, many times. It was killer. The last 12 years of music have been really killer, Christmas albums included. Tell me a little bit about this brand new song, because it's beautiful. It's so timely. I don't know when you wrote it. I don't know how the the the, the providence of it really came together. Yeah. But to just quote briefly from Revolutionary, you know, maybe you're not like me. Maybe we don't agree. Maybe that doesn't mean we got to be enemies. Maybe we just get brave, take a big leap of faith, call a truth so me and you can find a better way. We're going to find we're more alike than we are different. This is such a, a prophetic I think, song for this time of real divisiveness and chaos. But I'm so curious, like, did you write it? Like, (laughs) I'm sure months ago, years ago, recently, tell me the story of this song. It's funny because usually the quickest a song goes from, you know, seed to full tree is like, let's say the time that you write it to the time it's on the radio, the quickest that ever happens is probably for me, at least six months, right? And so I actually wrote this song back in, I believe, November of 19. So no pandemic. That had not come to to be. And of course, the murder of George Floyd, none of us knew that was coming and all of the, you know, racial tension and reconciliation that's happening right now. So none of that was necessarily on the radar when I wrote this song. But I tell you why I wrote it and why I think it, it works for all of this is because I knew that 2020 was going to be a divisive year in the U.S. because it's an election year, right? A presidential election. We know we know that our country is quite divided. So no, no matter where you find yourself on the political spectrum, we are led to believe that we have nothing in common with the other side and you can't possibly get along. And there's no way you could sit down to a meal and, you know, laugh at someone else's jokes if they don't vote like you do. And I just don't agree with that. I think we have way more in common than than we're led to believe. Anytime you turn on the news or scroll th- through social media, the thing that gets attention and sells ads is, is controversy and moral outrage and divisiveness and polarization. And man, I just think once you get to know somebody and learn their name and learn a little bit about their family and, hey, where are you from? And tell me about where you... Man, we have a lot more in common than we're led to believe. So, that's why I wrote the first verse of that song. I sat down with my friends, James Teeley and Steve Fee. And Steve and another guy, Jason Mater, had worked on this track. But then the three of us, me, James, and Steve, sat down to write the lyric. And James had a line, why does kindness seem revolutionary? And I said, that's it, man. 
we've got to write about the election year because we need to come together, even though we don't agree on all of you know these the reasons we vote the way we do. We've got to be kind to each other, and so that's why I wrote the first verse. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe we don't agree. Maybe that doesn't mean we've got to be enemies. Maybe we just get brave, take a big leap of faith, call a truce so me and you can find a better way. So fast forward to, yeah, a a month ago. The song's been out on radio for five weeks now. Fast forward, first of all, to the pandemic and and all of the craziness that's happening, right? Who, (laughs) Who would have thought we'd be living through this craziness right now? But here's why it's here's why it's timeless, because kindness is timeless, which means it's always timely. So no matter what's happening, treating each other with kindness, it's going to work. So we hit the pandemic and, and, and people are, are anxious. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I, I'm not touring anymore. So this is my, my income. And, and anytime you turn on the news, like I said, you see all the bad news. I love my, one of my favorite comedians, Dimitri Martin. He, he says they should, they should call the news what's wrong. Here's what's wrong today. <laughs> um, but uh, if you've seen John Krasinski's Some Good News, I mean, you turn that on, he's, he's aggregating all of these wonderful things that are happening. And I'm like, this is exactly what it is. Mr. Rogers said, when I was a boy and I, I see scary things on TV, my mom would say, always look for the helpers. There's always helpers. There's someone running towards the building that's on fire to help the people who are trapped inside. So that's what we saw and are seeing during the pandemic. And then, of course, with the the racial tipping point that happened with the murder of George Floyd and everything that has stemmed out from that, this is still the song I want to be singing right now. The chorus, why does kindness seem revolutionary? When do we let hate get so ordinary? Let's turn it around flip the script, judge slow, love quick. God help us get revolutionary. And listen, I've got a long way to go. I've got a lot to learn, but this is the song I want to be singing right now. I love it, man. And kindness really is timeless. It really is revolutionary. And frankly, it always demands something of us. It demands a bit of humility, demands a bit of selflessness. And frankly, it's something we never regret. We never regret being kind. I mean, as recently as this morning with a couple of my housemates, I was so short and impatient with them and giving them a hard time. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't even like how I feel right now. I know they don't like how they feel. Kindness always wins. It's always the answer. And especially if we want to engage in dialogue, if we want to even be remotely unified, you know, as a church and as a culture. I love it. Yeah, that's so true. And and you're right. It, it requires some work. It requires some humility. And this is one of those songs that my wife Becca and I were. She was saying the other day, you know, I'm I'm glad you write all these songs that you do, but I'm also mad because they're kind of convicting. They can be in a way, because if I'm going to put these out there, then I better be like doing my best to live by them, and that's why I'll be the first to admit I fall short. But you're right, and just like you, you said even today you've struggled with that. I mean. I have, you know, responded to my wife in ways even today that I'm like, man, I've got to be more kind. I've got to be more patient. I have a four-year-old son. Oh yeah, he's teaching me what it means to to have to be selfless and and you know look out for somebody else. And so he's teaching me what it means to be kind. And I have a long way to go, but but I think it's a worthy path. It's cool because even here in this second verse, you say, "I'm turning the TV down, drowning their voices out," because I believe that you and me can find some common ground. You know, there's been a lot of time to consume media over these last many months, 
right? Everybody is scrolling, everybody is live streaming, everybody's Netflixing. And frankly, many of us are doing it to a point of, I think, real like misery. You know, there comes a point where it just doesn't satisfy, right? How have you navigated that, especially as an artist? You're more in the habit of creating than consuming, but you're still a consumer. You're still out there trying to keep your standard high, trying to, I'm sure, be intentional as a family and the movies that you watch and the, the music that you listen to. How do you keep that standard high? And how do you even kind of build some of those disciplines or restraints around you? Because there's just so much. Well, that's a that's another area where I need to grow, but <laughs> for me, it's just turning everything off. And I don't mean unplugging in the world so that I can't engage with what's happening, but I just mean at a certain point, being, let's talk about COVID-19, being more scared of the coronavirus isn't going to help you not get it any more than if you weren't scared. I'm not saying don't be smart. I think we need to be doing the things that we're told to do in regards to safety. I mean, you and I are meeting via distance right now. But what I'm saying is like, I don't have to go read 45 articles on COVID-19 today. If I don't read them, I'll be just as safe <laughs> as if I do read them. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a point where be, becoming informed and becoming obsessive over something, I think there's a line that I can cross. And so for me, it's just, it's turning that stuff off. Occasionally I'll delete all the social media on my phone I have to keep it because I want to interact with with folks who listen to my music. I love staying in touch with people that way. So I don't like delete my accounts, but I'll just delete the apps off my phone. So when I habitually pick up this thing, I'm not tempted to just go start spiraling into all those articles about, like I said, what's wrong? (laughs) Local news. Here's what's wrong closest to you today. You know, so for me, it's just to turn it off for a little bit try and ground myself with the people that I'm actually around, which in this house, it's my wife and my little boy, Asher. And then our neighbors, you know, we we like to go out and, and visit our neighbors from a safe distance at this time and see people look them in the eyes. People, like I said, that probably vote differently than us and, and look at them and think, man, this is great. We are connecting with human beings and not scrolling through a feed, a bunch of ones and zeros that are designed to hold our attention by creating moral outrage and keeping us there to sell ads. You know, it's just getting around real people and getting away from the device when I can. And again, I got a long way to go, but I haven't looked at anything today. So I've not, I've not been on my social spiral today. So I'm actually feeling kind of okay right now. It's amazing. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot, especially with our patrons and our listeners is this need that we all have for encounter, right? That we, we can't live in isolation. And right now, a lot of people feel like they're very much living in isolation. You know, what's your word to certainly to your fans, to to folks who are maybe even hearing about you for the first time through our podcast, as well as the the folks who are out there still waiting to tune into radio at the right moment to catch revolutionary. You know, how can we find that common ground and even allow a space for encounter with with our neighbors, like our neighbor neighbors? Obviously with family. We've got a few holidays between now and the election day. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of opportunity for strife and for turmoil. But, you know, how do we find that common ground and allow for encounter? And I think kindness is clearly a part of the answer. What does it look like in your own life? One word comes to mind, and that's empathy. My wife, Becca, is the most empathetic person 
I've ever met. We we got married a year and a day after we met, so quickly. And we were long distance. She lived in Tulsa. I lived here in Nashville. And I remember thinking, man, this is all moving so quickly. But I knew, it's the same what my dad told me, when you know, you know. And I knew that I wanted to marry this girl because she shows me what it means to love and she shows me what it means to have empathy. And that's the word that comes to mind during all of this because if you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, even though you may not agree with their viewpoint, you might understand why they see the world that way. And then you're going to see them as a person instead of a stance or you know someone who views an issue differently than you do. So one thing I'm actually working on this year, which I need to work my way down to your house apparently, is my one of my New Year's resolutions was to learn every name of every neighbor on my street. Now, in between me and you is a pretty big cross street. So I, I actually stopped before that because that's like a whole other block. But I printed out a Google map aerial view of my neighborhood. And I'm literally like, as I learn people's names, I'm writing their names on the Google map houses. And that's just one thing I'm trying to do because I think if you learn somebody's name, all of a sudden they become a person rather than whatever the latest run-in you had with them is. They yelled because of your dog, whatever. It's like, no, that's Jacob and his mom is sick. And like you start learning things about people and you may disagree with them and that's okay. We don't all have to agree, but we can all be kind. And I think that starts with empathy. I love it, man. Empathy, intentionality, kindness. All right, we're gonna uh, just change the, the course of the conversation here for just a moment. Your looping, all right, has been compared to the likes of Ed Sheeran. I was just with a guitarist last week, brilliant, brilliant musician, actually in the North Georgia mountains. But she had only for the first time that week bought a loop pedal and begun experimenting with it. How do you do it? You're one of the best, Josh. How do you, I mean, is this just some like time and time again, you just keep practicing, you keep going after it. There's a lot of musicians out there who want to know how it's possible. How do you do it? Well, first of all, that's high praise. I'm not sure I deserve all of those accolades. I'm I'm honored and flattered. I I love looping. I think the question for me is not necessarily how do I do it, but why do I do it? And and the reason I started out looping was I just couldn't afford to take a band with me. I, I was a college <laughs> that's usually kid. how it is, yeah. Yeah, I was a college kid playing in, you know, bars and coffee shops and it was just me. I couldn't afford to I could barely afford the gas, much less to pay a drummer to come with me. So so I, I, you know, went to my music shop here in Nashville, bought a loop pedal, took it home and started learning how to play it. Now, I did play percussion in high school and I was a drummer. And so I, you kind of, I think if you, you have the skill of being able to keep a beat and also can play guitar, a loop pedal is kind of the natural progression because you're stomping on it in time. It records what you're playing and you step on it again, it starts to play back. So that's why I started looping was I just couldn't afford a band. Now, the reason I do it now is it's just become a passion of mine. I love being able to sit here in my studio and come up with this. It's kind of the way I write songs. I'll loop them and, you know, build the song around a loop. And then when I go perform it live, I think it's more fun sometimes for the audience to see the artist build the track as the song goes. And over the years, I've actually gone from just looping the acoustic guitar to now what I call my solo experience. And it's me with a circle of 10 instruments around me. And I actually will loop each of them. So I'll, I'll sing a verse and play a guitar. And then when I'm done singing that verse, the guitar keeps playing and I set it down. And then I walk over to the piano and I play the chorus and I add some piano chords. And then by the end of the song, there's six or seven instruments going. And to me, it's it's more fun to perform that way. I think it's very interesting and entertaining to watch people do that. 
that's why I do it. It's amazing. I, I'd be so curious to hear more about your creative process. A lot of the folks who are tuned in to our podcast aren't necessarily artists themselves, but really want to patronize the arts. They want to rally around artists they can really believe in that can bring beauty into the world, that can make a difference, that can impact culture, right? But they're often intrigued, if not mystified, by the creative process, right? For those who aren't artists, it's a mystery how a, a song can be written, how it can unfold. Now, obviously, you're a multi-instrumentalist, right? Is there one instrument in particular that you write most of your songs on? Does it begin with words? Does it begin with melodies? What's your process? Okay, so my primary instrument is guitar. I mentioned that I, I played drums, and then my first instrument that I ever learned was piano. So with those three things, those three instruments, you can kind of fake your way through a lot of different instruments. Like I, here in my studio, I've got a, a bazooki and a mandolin and a banjo and a ukulele and really anything with strings and frets, because I play guitar, you can sort of transfer that knowledge to another instrument with strings and frets. And then with piano and percussion, anything that's rhythmic or anything that you hit, like a dulcimer, that's kind of like meshing a piano and percussion together. So I do like to experiment with a bunch of different instruments. But in terms of my creative process, when I'm writing a song, I usually will pick either guitar or piano, and I will just strum or play and, and try and find something musically that inspires me or moves me. It's got like a good rhythm, a, got a good groove. I think, I think the, the, the music should move you before the lyric even comes in for the song. I think you should, you should be into it before the, the singer says anything, right? So that's kind of what I want to do first. And then, then I kind of try to decide like, what is this song about? And I do keep a whole journal of song titles or ideas that I want to write about. Maybe an idea that came to me at a meal with somebody where I can't sit down and write, but I'll just quick jot down the idea. And I just collect all of these ideas. So whenever I get the music the way I want it, I'll then go through all of my lyric ideas and see which one matches. And it's usually just a song title or a big idea. And from there, I just kind of start tinkering and, and seeing what lyrics go. It's kind of sometimes hard to find something that sings well, as well as says it the way you want to, if that makes sense. There, you know, semantics and phonetics have to sort of align perfectly. But that's how that's how I get started. And I don't typically just blow through a song and, and finish it in an hour or two. I'll, I'll usually work five or six hours in a day, come back the next day. And it takes me a, a few days to get it exactly how I want it. And that's just a, a little peek into my process. I will say this, if there's a, for those writers who are listening or watching, there's a wonderful book by an author, Stephen Pressfield, called The War of Art. And he wrote the book, The Legend of Bagger Vance. And this book is, The War of Art is all about the creative process. And he said, he likens it to surfing to where some days you, you go out there and you, you're hoping for a great wave to surf on. But to get out there and catch the wave, you have to do the work. You have to you know, get your board ready. You put on your wetsuit. You swim out there. You get ready. Some days there's a great wave. Other days, not so much. It's pretty calm. No waves. And as a writer, as long as I've done the work, I've sat here at my desk at, on a piano or a guitar, and I've sat here waiting for the wave, doing the work, even if I have nothing to show for it at the end of the day, I don't beat myself up because I did the work. And so that, that's always helpful for, for me to remember is it's not going to show up every day. There's not always going to be a wave, but I do kind of sit down and treat it like a work day 
And then when inspiration does strike, I just make sure and get those ideas down for when I paddle out later to try and catch that wave. I love that, man. I think there's a parallel there, like in the spiritual life, like for, for the Christian who is serious about prayer, the main thing is showing up every day. Yeah. You know, and there's not always going to be all this consolation. You're not always going to hear a voice out of the heavens. You know, I think there's a lot to learn from creatives if we're serious about being people of prayer, especially if we've got discipline and we've got rhythm in our lives. It's by showing up, right, that the great waves come and that the huge inspirations can really unfold. So I think that's a really amazing way of looking at it. I'm also just really curious for you. Obviously, you know, your faith is a big part of your artistry. You know, how much of, you know, who you are as a Christian sort of plays itself out both in the creative process, but also in your career. Like, obviously, you're trying to make a living here as an artist and have been now for over a decade, which in and of itself is amazing. But what's the interplay, even the tension you feel sometimes in faith and business and music and career and family? I mean, there's a lot to be held in, in tandem there. <laughs> well, this is my studio. And I don't know, I've got some of the lights dimmed right now, so I'm not sure if you can see, but the paint is gray. That's for a reason. My studio is called The Gray Area. And I was very intentional in what I named this place because I used to think that faith and life were pretty black and white. I used to be a pretty legalistic person and, and think if you got the equation and the formula right, then you'd have this elegant, beautiful, easy, reproducible answer. And as I've gotten older, as I've followed Jesus for longer in my life, I've, I've started to realize that Again, back to revolutionary, seeing things black and white. Well, we can't get along. We don't agree. No, there's there's usually, it's somewhere in the middle. It's usually a gray area. I love what G.K. Chesterton said in Orthodoxy. He said, it's not the poets and musicians who go mad. It's the, it's the mathematicians and scientists who try and add everything up. And I try to do that. I don't know if, are you an Enneagram person at all? I think I'm the, cam- is the campaigner one of the options? I don't know. I, I'm not an I think expert. I'm three. I think I'm three. Okay, okay. Well, so I'm a five, which is the investigator. So I like the equation. I like adding it up. And and in that book, he says, instead of trying to build a bridge across the infinite ocean that is God, what we need to do is just swim in the ocean, jump off the bridge and enjoy, enjoy the water. And so that's what I've tried to do in my life and in my music to try and come back to that childlike faith that says, I don't have to have every answer I sure used to want every, I still want every answer, let's be honest. I, but I'm, I know now that I won't find the answer to every question. And so that plays itself out in my music and in my art and in my lyrics and in my family. So in, in my music, a lot of my songs, I think they ask more questions than they necessarily give answers. It's a push and a pull. And, and I use my music to work out my faith, I think. A lot of times I sit down to write and this is me asking a hard question. You know, like what is, well, my song, I Refuse, it's an older song. It's about praying, but not doing anything. So asking God to, to, to do something, but not being willing to be part of that change. Uh, and the chorus is, I don't want to live like I don't care. I don't want to say another empty prayer. I refuse to sit around and wait for someone else to do what God has called me to do myself. And this is me working out my faith, saying what you're saying. The days I don't feel like praying, the days I don't feel like showing up, I'm going to continue to do that until my faith catches up. I'm going to continue on the same 
trajectory. And the way it plays out in my family, so I have a four-year-old who's starting to ask like pretty deep questions. And I'm already getting used to saying, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> so that's that's how that gray area plays out for us. And I do believe in absolute truth. I, I think it's there. I just don't think we always have access to every facet of it. And I think that's that plays out in every area of my life. Really well said. And in you working it out in your own songwriting process, in your own storytelling during and in between live songs, you're giving the rest of us permission to ask the tough questions, to keep exploring the depths and the mysteries of God, right? And I think there is this temptation, especially in this kind of materialistic age that we're living in. We want to be able to grab onto everything. If we can't perceive it with our senses, it's not real. If it can't be mathematically deduced, then no, how could that possibly be true? You're helping all of us by being faithful to your vocation as an artist. You're helping all of us be faithful to our vocations as as human persons, right? Who are engaged in a lot of mystery. I was at a show recently with Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michael W. Smith, Mac Powell, few of my lifelong heroes. And I'm sure you've, you've shared a stage with all three of those guys at some point. But Stephen Curtis, man, he's been through the ringer. And yet you can still see in him that childlike faith. We've all been through the ringer. Life is full of suffering, but to maintain childlike faith in the midst of it is to sort of, you know, make peace terms with mystery and with those gray areas you're describing. Yeah, and it's not always comfortable, but I think you meant earlier, you used the word tension. That's it, man. If you got to hold that stuff in tension because we just don't, we're not, we're not at, the, at the finish yet. And until we're there, there's a lot of gray. And yeah, I actually, I got to tour with, with Stephen Curtis and Third Day, not on the same tour, but yeah, you talk about Stephen Curtis. He he's continuing to write songs that ask questions. He's writing songs about just the things in life that don't necessarily add up all neat and tidy like we want them to. But he's still singing from his heart, and it is genuine. There is a childlike faith, and and that's where I'm trying to get back to. I'm trying to be more like my four year old. That's my goal. <laughs> Asking all the tough questions that don't necessarily have straight answers, you know? Exactly. That's really good, man. Well, uh, really, really appreciate your time. This has been an absolute joy and a privilege. Tell us a little bit um, as we close out the conversation, where your career is going right now, what kind of projects and new music we have to look forward to. Is there ever going to be live music again on planet Earth? All those kinds of things. (laughs) Hey, listen, I've actually played a couple of live shows recently. They were outdoors, socially distanced, very safe. So yeah, I have been... Just sort of easing back into touring. I've got some tour dates up on my website, joshwilsonmusic.com. And the ones all scheduled for me are all outside. So that is, a, I think, a safe way to enjoy music right now. But yeah, I'm working on new songs. I'm recording two new songs. I can't tell you the titles of those right now, but those will be coming out soon. Yeah, I'm writing every day. I'm continuing to work on my live show because, of course, touring is coming back at some point. It'll come back to where it was, and uh, we'll have to figure out when that's going to be. But in the meantime, man, I I got a lot of songs to sing, to write, to share, and would love to to meet any of your your audience. You can find me on my website, joshwilsonmusic.com. All my socials are there, and yeah, I'd love to connect with you guys. Yeah, massive thanks, Josh, for, for again, this time together, for the, the real inspiration and the conviction, as you put it. There's a, a whole lot of work to be done 
and building a culture of kindness and building a culture, as you put it, of empathy, of not being afraid of finding the common ground and loving people right where they are. This has just been a really, again, privileged conversation. We'll do it again sometime. Love it. Thanks for having me. Talk to you guys later. Peace. I'm turning the TV down, drowning their voices out Cause I believe that you and me can find some common ground See, maybe I'm not like you, but I walk a mile in your shoes If it means I might see the world the way you do Let's take some time, open our eyes, look and listen And we're gonna find we're more alike than we are different You're listening to Revolutionary, the brand new single from Josh Wilson. What a joy to get to sit down with one of Nashville's finest singer-songwriters. Man, that guy's the real deal. And I cannot wait to become like friends, you know, like neighbor neighbors need to be friends. It's so easy to forget the the need that we have for community. And sometimes, okay, yeah, this pandemic has really shut things down. We're still kind of coming out of this crisis. Maybe we're still swimming in the crisis. I don't really know, but there's nothing more powerful if we're serious about human relationship, if we're serious about community, there are a few things more powerful anyways than just going and knocking on our neighbor's door, knowing who they are, caring about who they are and what their lives entail. Such a simple and easy and beautiful thing to do. And what an amazing way to not only share the faith, to not only build bridges, but to build community around us. So a killer conversation today with Josh. In fact, some of our great community builders out there, our culture makers, as many of you know, are our patrons. And we've got a beautiful blog up this week highlighting one of our founding patrons from Birmingham, Alabama, the Murphys. Some of our greatest patrons are families who are out there raising their standard for music, books, and art and building a culture within their own homes that leads to real human flourishing, that leads to their children thriving, that leads to just really amazing, amazing marriage and family life. And uh, we just feel honored as Love Good to be a small part of that. So if you've never been to the Love Good blog, all you got to do is go to lovegoodculture.com slash blog. If you forget that, just go to our website, click on the blog, and uh, you can also just click on the link in the episode notes of this podcast. But just know that we are constantly putting out incredible, incredible new content on that blog. And so much of it features our patrons, both their stories as well as their own creative offerings as well. So we're really excited about that. Again, go to lovegoodculture.com slash blog. Super excited to be sitting down with Marisol next week. Many of you know Marisol Alisea. She books all of our house concerts, all of our backyard shows, and she has got crazy stories from the road because for most of the month of July, she and Jackie Minton were out there killing it, going all over the Midwest, hosting these beautiful outdoor backyard concerts. And I think we saw a surge in over 70 new patrons over a two, two and a half week period. So I cannot wait to hear some stories from Marisol, stories from the road, stories from our patrons. And as always, hope you guys are having an amazing week. We'll see you next time around. Peace. 
Massive thanks for tuning in to the Love Good Podcast. If you like this week's episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, share it on social media, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and then join us on the front lines of building a better culture by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. Our patrons get all kinds of incredible exclusive content, such as a weekly long-form video of the podcast, a monthly live stream house concert with our artists, and a seasonal package that will raise your standard for music, books, and art forever. Thanks again for tuning in. It's an honor to accompany you as you change the world.